Hey everyone, it's Mind Rolling back with uh, me as your host, Raghu. And uh, I, I have a delight today. I've got an old buddy, East Forest, Krishna. Hey, glad to have you. And then I have the, th- uh, it's always a thrill for me, John Hopkins, who, whose music speaks for itself over many, many years. And we're going to talk about it. And uh, these guys put together a track using some Ramdas audio uh, that is uh, superb spectacular uh, as soon as i heard it there's a there's also a, an incredible video that uh, john's team put together labeled domino and well i should say yes please i you know let's put them in the in the mix as well and that's all gonna be available to you um and linked up in the show notes and all that stuff so john welcome to the podcast thank you thank you good to meet you so uh I mean, I know of you because of uh, uh, Brian, Brian Eno, who I have loved for a long, long time, and uh, all the way back to uh, music for airports. And uh, and I was doing some things na- then that made that album and that music uh, maybe saved my life <laughs> in the moments where I was uh, doing some wild extracurricular activity, shall we say. <laughs> you can say what it is. I think that's safe. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> Ethnogens. Okay. Um, way back in the day. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's a real pleasure to have you on. And uh, I just want, and this is something that I love to get from somebody I have not met before, which is, how did this all emerge from wherever you were brought up and all the causes and conditions that uh, contributed to who you are now? And, uh, of course, we're going to talk a lot about uh, um, a subject that's very dear to you, which is the proper use, pro- say proper, that's a little bit judgmental, the use of ethnogens mm-hmm. as therapy, as transformational uh, process. And, uh, but... How did you even wake up to the fact maybe there's something else out there aside from what they've been feeding me in this culture? So, yeah, just talk a little bit about uh, how you you came up and where you're from and all that. Yeah, sure. So um, I um, was born in South London um, to a uh, a loving middle-class family and music appeared like pretty much as I did, you know, with me. Within two years, I was improvising and playing around with toys and just showing signs of musicality and um my parents were very supportive and uh, they put like a little uh, mini piano in the house when i was young and i i taught myself and um it just became an, uh, an obsession and uh, mm. you know i think it saved them from my kind of slightly overly energetic self because i had something to to sort of to really dive deep into from quite an early age um so i didn't need quite so much attention and um and then as i grew up um yeah the real switch into that um that realization you talk about was was actually cannabis um when i was about 14 15 and um there was obviously no framework or real education around the subject because it was just forbidden and that was that and um but i came into contact with some and um and just started experiencing music in a completely different way and um <laughs> suddenly you know I, I found some ambient stuff from there was a german label called iq um which made a lot of great trance and techno and they they had a, a little ambient offshoot label called recycle or die and um this was 1994 or five or something um when I first heard it, and it was this, you know, super long form tracks, um, lots of arpeggios, and the kind of classic uh, German psychedelia sound a little bit. Um, but I just started seeing things, you know, in this combination of this this wonderful music and and cannabis, and um, you know, I, I, my life at the time was was a little difficult because, you know being 14 sucks anyway and you know at a school i was at a boys only school yeah there's not much to say for that time of life really and i i feel 
I feel sad when I hear people say it was the best time of their life for me. It was like, that's about as, you know, you're neither one thing nor the other and you, you don't really know what you're doing. And, um, you know, you, you, you haven't yet learned anything, but you start, you're starting to grasp the seriousness of life perhaps. Um, but so I kind of, I didn't feel like there was much going on in my real, my real world. Um, and so I dive, I dive quite deep into music and, and, I consider cannabis to be a psychedelic, really, as far as mm, taking sure. the word at its meaning as mind exploring. Um, and I found this other band called Osric Tentacles, who are like a classic progressive rock band, strongly influenced by Hawkwind. And, um, you know, I don't know, you're both smiling. Maybe you've heard of them, but I no, don't know. No, I, I love haven't. the name. It sounds yeah, like a yeah. progressive band. Yeah, that's right. why I was like, that's perfect name. Yeah, yeah I mean, there, there's some incredible, I mean, anyone wants to check out what I'm talking about, listen to the song called Dance of the Lumi. Um, Say Odyssey's, the band name again. Yeah, Osric Tentacles. Um, Osric uh, Tentacles. Okay. Yeah, we'll, I have we'll to get credit them the show with. Notes. Yeah, I have to credit them with getting me started, really, because um, there, you know, there's a lot of crazy guitar solos and a lot of long hair and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But that wasn't what I was interested in. I was interested in how they use synths, and mm. I'd never heard. Um, this use of analog synths before and arpeggios and it's something it's an obsession that remains to this day which is like the combination of electronic music and and psychedelics or meditation and um so these guys kind of set me on this path and i, I started having these insanely blissful um experiences you mm. know just just combining cannabis with listening to this music and, and it was a very solo activity i would just dive in most nights on my own and i mean it wasn't really healthy because i had no there was no one guiding me and I, I I went pretty deep until it stopped working. By the time I was about 16, 17, this mm. magic had kind of departed and it was as if I'd used up my tokens almost, you know. There's like mm -hmm. the it's almost like a no entry sign in front of that. So I started to become um in fact it started to become quite a negative thing and I was realizing I was dependent and, you know, I, I had to start looking outside of that. And um it wasn't until I was twenty, twenty one that I I actually became quite ill with a kind of chronic fatigue syndrome or wow. ME. And, and so I had this period where life had got on top of me a bit. And um, and in that time, I, I started to think, well, I've got a lot of this, you know, I can't really do very much. So what can I learn that doesn't require too much energy? And I thought, I'll learn to meditate. And I went really? on to the... That just popped in your head. Uh, yeah, it was just like, I'm the kind of person that should learn that. That's what I thought. And... Uh, <laughs> I remember very clearly this moment of just the internet was young then. This was two thousand and one. You know, if you only had it, I'd had an email address for three or four years at this point or something, and I typed in meditation into Amazon, and <laughs> this book came up called Meditation as Medicine. I was like, well, I'm quite unwell, and I want to learn to meditate. This sounds kind of perfect. <laughs> it turned out to be a book uh, teaching the basics of Kundalini Yoga. Oh, um, who, which, who wrote it? Do you remember? Uh, Dharma Singh Khalsa. Who uh -huh. is a, is a Sikh community? Yeah, well, he's converted to Sikhism. He was, um, and he'd, he'd learned under Yogi Bhajan, who, mm -hmm. of course, there's some some problems around. But um, the, yeah. the techniques, the techniques yeah. discussed in that book are, are ancient. And with everything I learn, I separate out from you know, there's no one kind of teacher. But I essentially started to reconnect to some of the magic that I found through those early cannabis experiences and mm. um and uh, yeah and i, I gradually went to i suppose open my third eye just through this this process of having a, a kundalini sadhana in the mornings um and you know it's obviously that was 20 years ago and um but i just started to glimpse uh, little little touches of infinity here and there and mm. uh you know when you just just those little cracks through mm. you know first um, I was not really ready or interested in taking any entheogens um, at that point. I felt, you know, the idea of mushrooms at that point would have been terrifying. It wasn't until I was 27 and I kind of settled a lot more into myself and I'd written a lot more music and perhaps become a bit more confident generally um, that I started to think more, you know, when I saw friends taking mushrooms on a beach in Scotland, I thought I'll just, you know, maybe try a little bit of this and um what followed was a you know the kind of classic life-changing experience mm. 
wow. um, where you you know where you see you truly see nature for the first time. You truly you stay at your own hands, and you realize, wait a minute, I've got hands, and what's I? You know, all that stuff <laughs> suddenly hit me, and uh, and yeah, and I, I kind of got set down that path for a little bit. Mm. Well, I think we. Uh... The three of us have very similar experiences. Mine, you know, I've told a billion times on this podcast, but it was uh, uh, a real transformational moment when I actually went, when I was around the age you're talking about, with when cannabis and music really did it for you, was uh, I was around that same age, more like 16, maybe 17, but uh, it was John Coltrane playing uh, with his quartet and then he played my favorite things on the soprano and I had that moment into the crack uh, whatever the gap uh, opened up for me and uh, uh, music was always the dearest thing for me uh, from a young age I just didn't have the discipline like you did both of you guys to to really um, learn an instrument and so on you know and I ended up being involved with music and producing and stuff like that, but um, but yeah, right, Krishna, with you, I can't remember if we talked about it, but yeah, music, the transformational quality that hit way way uh, beneath the currents of uh, whatever we thought we were at the time. Yeah, well, it's making me think. I'm trying to remember too, and I remember um, there was different music that kind of hit for me hard early on even like things like bill evans is really into him mm. for a while jazz mm. guy but mm. i do remember some early experiences with music aligning with mushrooms in a very particular way that was a really big influence on what i do today and there was this um there's this israeli choreographer i met back in graduate school and then when i was living in new york city she would stop by randomly because i lived like in Soho in this tiny, tiny apartment, which means everyone's going to stop by to use your bathroom, you know, because you're like in the city. And she stopped by once and she was in the bathroom and she'd just been to this music store up the street near Astor Place called Other Music that I don't believe is there anymore. But they always had all this interesting international music that you couldn't find anywhere else. And of course, this is way before uh, Napster or even let alone iTunes digital music. And there was this band, this CD she had called Merz. It was this German... I don't know, this little like instrumental project. And I ripped the CD while she was in the bathroom and copied <laughs> it without her. I don't know why. And then it actually became this really seminal record for me that I just kept listening to over and over again. And mm. there was this one time I remember uh, I was had psilocybin in my system. I just got into this concrescence of this place of meaning and music and the medicine. And yeah, it was very powerful. Mm. Um, but, you know, other experiences since then. But I do remember that first one. I have to, uh, just thinking, uh, John, about what you said, that it was later on when you were 27 where you actually started in investigating ethnogens, starting with uh, mushrooms. And you said, uh, I may not be quoting you exactly, but you, you had um, felt that you had a real base formed a wholeness within yourself. And I may be extrapolating a little bit um, before you actually went in and, and delved into uh, ethnogens, psychedelics. And I, I just think that it, uh, when you said it, it hit me as something that's a great advisal for anybody out there who is considering uh, doing any kind of psychedelic uh, experience. And uh, it, it, uh, to do it without... Well, Ramdas talked about... Uh, we, we had a whole movie called Becoming Nobody, and it was... You cannot become nobody until you become somebody. And I think that's a little bit of what, in, in a different way, you're saying the same thing. And it's a good advisal, I think, for people. You get centered in your being and, and feel a, a real connectivity with who you are as a human and who you are, uh, what your purpose is in this life, etc., etc. So I, I just really love what you said there, and I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, I think um, as well, I would put a lot of that down to the process of learning how to breathe in a meditative way and learning, you know, learning the importance of a mantra or, or just or just learning to sit with yourself, you know. Yeah, just um, learning to sit with yourself, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah absolutely. If you just, if, otherwise, it's just like you're diving off a cliff, you've got no idea. 
Yeah, it's totally yeah. yeah. Um, okay, we've just spent 15 minutes rapping about all of this, and when we ha- we're we're talking about music here, <laughs> and I hate to not share with the audience. So, uh, and and you guys will talk about it after. Uh, but basically, uh, John has a new album that'll be coming out this fall, and uh, the single on it uh, is a collaboration with. Uh, Krishna, known as East Forest, and uh, using some um, piece of a talk of Ramdas, and uh, I, I don't even want to describe or say another thing. Here we go. We're going to play the track. It's debuting here on on Mind Rolling. As if in each of us there once was a fire. For some of us, there seem as if there are only ashes now. But when we dig in the ashes, we find one ember. And very gently we fan that ember. Blow on it. It gets brighter. And from that ember, we rebuild the fire. Okay, when I first heard this track, I uh, now we've been doing different things through our Soul Land music series with various musicians, and most prominently is East Forest. And uh, uh, I won't get too far into the, the whole idea that he had and stuck to, because he said, I'm, I want to go over and just hang out with Ramdas, and I'm going to record whatever. I said, It was what? more nuanced than that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, and I said, what are you doing that for? You know, he's got aphasia. How the hell is that going to work? You know, and he can't explicate stuff the way he used to. Here, I'll get you also. Nope. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, you had sent me some material that made me realize, uh, let's uh, stop pushing whatever it is I thought it should be on onto uh, East Forest. So... Uh, this wonderful uh, record emerged, and and we've been working with different people, and they've been using uh, prominently also uh, Justin Beretta uh, of Glitch Mob did a wonder. He's done a couple of beautiful meditations with with Ramdas with uh, his sonic atmosphere underneath, and then I heard what you guys did, and I uh, I was really struck uh, the the sophistication of the integration, because that's not always easy to integrate what, in this case, Ramdas, uh, his words, his from his talk, his tone, his relationship with the audience, all of it was going on, to uh, integrate uh, a musical bed underneath that and have it be integrative is not an easy thing. And uh, I was just struck by it. So, uh, I mean, I just think it's a, an extraordinary track. Now I got to hear from you guys, how the hell did you... How'd you meet and how'd you put this together? Um, the way we met's kind of funny. Uh, it's Instagram through Anna, our dear friend, DJ Anna, who is such a sweetheart. And I met her, I, I, I don't even normally catch these sorts of things, but she had, I don't know, she made she made a comment or something. And I was like, hey, your music is interesting. interesting. And we started connecting and worked on a track together. And she, I think, had mentioned, John, that you guys knew each other and that I don't know if I was like, I'm a huge fan of John or she said, John would love to chat with you. Whatever it was, I was over the moon. And then we uh, started connecting. And Raghu, you had been asking me to explore doing something with older Ramdas material. And as you said, the Ramdas album we made was newer material. And that was very intentional. And I had never worked with actually a recorded sample of someone speaking that I hadn't recorded myself uh, ever. So I had this sort of aversion to it, almost like I just want to paint with the colors that I have, like what's sort of given to me. And But I thought, what the hell, let's give it a shot. And when we searched for a long time for a talk, and we found that talk from 1975, I believe he's at a Unitarian church in Massachusetts. And it was a long talk, about two hours, but there were, it was, 
he just felt so tapped in and so open. And I took out a lot of the religious specificity and took the two hours and I probably put it down to like, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes or so. And John and I have been talking and I really felt like if we're going to bring on someone to help with this and expand it to more audiences and a different voice musically, I couldn't think of anyone better than John. And so I sent him that talk and the idea and then he uh, went to Scotland, I believe, and said yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did you you cut up different parts and put them together or did you take an I never asked you this before and I don't know the answer or did you just take an excerpt I I don't think I think I I did the first cut which is fairly drastic and I even did some um, I never told you this John but I like I did a lot of treatment to it like denoising and stuff and in retrospect it's like I probably could have not so that you had more latitude maybe you wanted more high end and you know right now it sounds it is what it is but then you cut it and actually you put stuff back in if I remember correctly. Oh, really? Yeah, you, you yeah. added... Well, I made various cuts. I kept shortening mm-hmm. it. And then mm-hmm. you you made a really wonderful decision to like kind of say, I, I think these sections need to be there and it needs to be a little longer. Yeah, I mean, something I should point out is that um, I work in such a strange trance-like way that I often don't remember the origins of things. Um, particularly with this track, it was like this thing wrote itself. You know, it was it was so beamed in um but yeah i remember receiving i remember i think you sent um yeah definitely a longer file and then some shorter bits and then i think i'm just such a big believer in just getting the audio in front of you and what tends to happen first these days anyway for some reason tends to be the right thing and um there were sections in there which just, you know, just to, to start with that first line, beyond all polarities I am, it was as if, for me, that was always the start, mm. even though it wasn't. But musically, that just had to be the start. Um, and um, and Krishna had recorded some wonderful other parts um, as a starting point. I love to bounce off things, you know, so whenever I'm about to collaborate with someone, I ask them to, um, if they're open to it, just to, you know, jam something out as a starting point. And whether I use all of it or not is is unknown at that point but he did these incredible vocals which immediately soloed and just put in this huge reverb and that's what you hear throughout the track and i i sing along with them a little bit myself but it's mostly him and um and actually just to talk a bit about the treatment of the voice i love what you did because you know i'm very much of the view that it, it this track has turned out exactly how it's supposed to and you know me me and um my engineer Sharif worked quite a lot on the sound of that as well, just to, I mean, I love the tapey sound of it, but it isn't, you know, and I love the fact there's still some noise left, you know, and there's a a few coughs in there. You can hear that there's an audience as well. And I don't know, I mean, we tried quite hard to remove, I think there's two audible coughs. I tried to remove them and I was like, no, you know, they're supposed to be there. This is like, this is the little check-in with the fact that he's talking to in a room of people and it's, it's beautiful and it's real. And you know, on on the album, this is the it's the last track on the album, and um, mm. there's a lot of I, I love using layers of noise of different types, some natural, some unnatural, and it, it just felt like this talk, the sound of it, it's just exactly how it's supposed to be, and and we tried to make it, just trying to make the voice. I mean, I think it came out um, slightly higher pitched than he actually spoke it, so I dropped the pitch down a bit from the tape. And, um, tape machine, yeah. yeah. That was yeah, you, yeah, ca- you yeah. caught that. That was really slick, and you dropped it a little bit, and I was like, "Oh, there he is!" You know, yeah, it was yeah. a semitone. Yeah. So it's quite a meaningful yeah. amount, which meant that when I first heard it, it was like he sounds quite shrill. <laughs> I thought that's not the voice I have heard before. So it was just like, and then it's down one semitone. It's like that's that's exactly it. Mm. And then once that started clicking, um, yeah, it was like put the vocals behind, and then there was this really potent moment that I'll never forget which was you know, I wasn't in this studio you see now this studio was not yet built at this point this was last October I think um, uh, but this piano is the same piano that you hear on the track um, and um, I was just like I had this feeling that as soon as it started playing that first take that that would be it and that's exactly what happened so what you know I had I had this the talk playing in my headphones these headphones and um, it's like, I don't know what chords are going to come out. I'm going to wait until it feels like it's time for a chord. And then, and that was that, 
you know, and what you hear is is what came out. So it was like a strange kind of interplay between a talk recorded many years ago and something happening there and then. And um, I've just learned over the years, particularly when making this more spiritually inclined music or like fully spiritual music, um, that if it's right when you start, then don't mess around. <laughs> just, yeah. just go, just, you know, the tweaks I made were very small. Just, just sometimes it was like more space between his cadences or his paragraphs. And sometimes it was allowing a bit more room for the other instruments, but, but generally everything just, it really just landed. So yeah. uh, in a way that I perhaps haven't experienced before. And you, you know that when you hear it, I mean, as soon as I heard uh, the song for the first time, uh, the track, I, I the integ- I said it before introducing it whatever the integration of it is uh, absolutely phenomenal and you get uh, I pretty well knew you guys just went into the I didn't know you know what you're doing now and telling me the construction and so on but it was obvious that the integration was immediate and it was uh, one of those things beyond I'm doing anything it was one of the first times I also had rearranged Ramdas. Uh, I kind of had this golden rule with the original record. It's like, well, i very careful about the order that he said something in. And when we were in Maui recording, it was so concise what he said because of the aphasia in his age. It was really, there wasn't a lot. It was just perfect. Mm. But with this talk, there was so much. And it really became like, there were kind of three different ideas in that talk that we are in the song now. And it was sort of like moving things around, deciding like what should be the opening line and, you know, what's the through line. And that was a whole different sort of editorial hat to put on that I was sort of not comfortable with, but <laughs> needed to be done because it, I think one of the great things about working with Ramdas and his words is finding in some ways the smallest parts to get the point across, you know, and give it the spaciousness to land and the music to swim around that and not for it to be too much or too loquacious. And so that was an interesting challenge in this. And John, I thought you did just a fantastic job of um, supporting you know, the, the meaning of, of what he was saying. Yeah, yeah, and, and there was, yeah. I mean, appreciate that. There was no conscious um, thought applied to that. And, you know, it, it's, um, it just, it's like there's a different part of me kicks in. And I'm sure you know this feeling as well. I'm sure you both do where you just like, I, I'm going to, I'm getting out of the way of this. And mm. you just, you just see yourself doing these changes and you're like, whatever it is you're working on. And uh, it's, yeah, it was, it was really clear in that way. So I just mm. kind of got out of the way really. That's <laughs> the, that is the, yeah, it's the uh, hallmark, a bumper sticker for, any artist is, yeah, just clear out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, can we, I uh, just want to switch gears a little bit, uh, just because, uh, you know, you've been done a lot of work with Brian Eno, and um, uh, I just, how did that all come about, and what was that like, and uh, and so on? And we'd like to hear a little bit about your that uh, part of your life. Yeah, sure. So this was, um, I think I was 23 and um, I was, it was one of the great synchronicities of my life. The first really clear one actually was um, a guitarist friend that I have known since I was 13 called Leo Abrahams, um, who's on almost all of my albums and I've collaborated with on scores and just so many things. Um mm. He's one of the honestly one of the best guitar players I've ever heard, if not the best. And he was um, trying out um, guitars in a guitar shop, um, just playing quietly to himself, not not aware that there was anyone listening in. And um, it turned out Brian was standing behind him, <laughs> which is it's unusual. Good he, it's, it's good he didn't know, you know. <laughs> exactly, and Leo had no idea, and he just kept playing. And and it was precisely the way Brian tells it, it was precisely because he wasn't playing anything flashy. He was playing something really restrained and beautiful, and incredibly eloquent. Um, yeah, he he was moved to um, introduce himself, and Leo was obviously like, you know, I, I know, I know who you are. It's amazing, and um, so they started. Uh, playing together in Brian's studio. And after a, a year or so of that, um, sporadic jams they were doing, um, Brian said to Leo, is there anyone else you know you might invite into this 
situation and maybe would, would work well playing with us. And um, Leo was kind enough to think of me and uh, we'd been improvising together at this point for 10 years and we'd been in a band together for um, an artist called Imogen Heap. That was my first job. Oh, yeah. and he, She's, you know, she's absolutely wonderful musician. And so we had kind of quite a, well, a very long history of playing together even then. And um, so I got this call from Brian um, and he asked me to come in and, and play with him. And um, the improvisations from that went on to form part of his album, Another Day on Earth, which was, mm. I think, then came out in 2005, which was his first vocal album in, in decades, I think. And then, um, yeah, we just went on to do a lot of other stuff after that. And the, the experiences, you know, it's, I think the last time we played together was, it wouldn't have been last year, but 2019. So, I mean, it's been very regular. Um, it'd be the odd year where we didn't do anything, but, you know, he he brought me into um, to work on the Coldplay albums that he worked on. And that relationship has been long and amazing as well. Um, changed my life in many ways. And... Um, you know, we released an album on Warp Records in 2010 called Small Craft on a Milk Sea that came from two weeks of improvisations between him, Leo and myself. You know, so there's there's a lot of stuff. Mm. We did live shows in Sydney Opera House, fully improvised with... Can you, John, what's the name yeah. of that record again? Uh, Small Craft on a Milk Sea. That's, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, uh, Yeah. you guys make sure you get them in the show notes here, all of these links and, you know... Um, uh, yeah, I want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's some very, um, it's a very kind of polarized album. There's some very edgy, kind of tense stuff on there. It's all very filmic. Um, mm. But there's some very, very beautiful melodic stuff as well. And, uh, you know, you can hear the three of us truly exploring things without any time constraint, you know. So it's this wonderful thing for me because when I'm writing music, it's a very uh, intense process and uh, I do everything apart from, you know, I have help with the mixing um, from my engineer and uh, little things along the way, but essentially I control everything like a freak. <laughs> and uh, with Brian, you just get to turn up and improvise for days and make loads of music very freely and then he takes it away and turns it into something. And it's always, by the time you hear it, you're like, I don't even remember playing that. And it just mm. feels quite... That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible <laughs> privilege, really. Mm, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. You know, and of course, uh, yeah, and that album, uh, the Coldplay, uh, Viva La Vida, mm. that you, you co-produced that with, with Brian, is that correct? Yeah, so this is another thing that came from that. I wouldn't say I co-produced the album, but I co-produced two of the songs on it, uh -huh. the opening and the closing song. Um, and the reason that credit came about was because um, I played Chris a track of my own called Light Through the Veins, which wasn't released at that point. It came out in 2009 in the end, but uh, we were working on this album in 2007. I think, I, yeah, I was 27. And um, I just had this... I had this feeling that he would love this track and uh, he, he yeah, really fell in love with it and wanted to sing on it and open the shows with it, you know. So this was all like a huge, wow. like, huge life change for me and it's incredible to get the support of such a talented songwriter, you know, to bring obscure artists into the mainstream briefly like that and support mm -hmm. them. Um, and I opened their shows for them. I just did loads of stuff back then. And, and you know, we, we still work together to this day. Oh yeah, um, we still write together, and it's it's you know all this came through Brian originally. Yeah, lovely, amazing. What yeah? a trip! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fortune. Oh, but that's the way things turn out. It's like the way you put together this song with uh, East Forest and Ramdas, the natural emergence of it, and uh, the flourishing is uh, hopefully it gets translated to all the different parts of our lives when we all have that kind of a moment, no matter what we do. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I Also, um, I, I wanted to play another track to give people an idea of some of your other work. And, and the one, you, you did a, a record called Singularity in 2018.
Can you just talk a little bit about how that uh, came about? Yeah, so I think that was my uh, fifth solo album. Just checking, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it got it a lot was, of acclaim, right? That record got a lot. It did well, yeah. It was it was top ten in the album charts over here, which is pretty weird for an instrumental electronica album. Um, and yeah, it was a Grammy nomination over there and... Um, you know, a lot of stuff I never thought would be particularly available to someone making this kind of music. And uh, but it it came. I mean, this was the point to go back to our earlier conversation, at which um, entheogens had crept into my life in a different way. So around um, uh, would have been uh, 2015, just as I was starting to write uh, this album, I, I finally became comfortable enough in myself to be curious and act on the curiosity about what DMT might be like mm-hmm. and um, I can honestly say it's not something I would recommend <laughs> I wouldn't recommend <laughs> anyone take anything of course but um, this is you know I, I feel like I probably had my time with that experience but it did change everything and uh, I, I'd been doing transcendental meditation for um I think about a year at this point and that was where I finally felt a deep, even deeper connection even deeper solidity within myself and I was like I, I can't imagine going through my whole life without having this experience you know having read a lot about it and uh, watching the spirit molecule and all these things um, curious about the effect it would have on creativity and um, yeah this album was born out of those experiences really um, and in fact it's kind of it's only the beginning of that story, really, because the new album takes that and times as it by a thousand. But um, Singularity <laughs> itself was was also, I realise in retrospect, was also very written for, very tailored for um, live performance. It was very much about uh, getting people to, to dance and, and lose themselves in the trance state that comes with dancing. Um, and there were some quite big, catchy, danceable tracks on there. And... Uh, you know it was a lot of hard work to make that stuff work um and to still feel like it had that that spiritual kind of that 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 message running through it and um yeah there's almost a a battle between the the technology like actually trying to make that stuff sound fluid and work when when the reality is that you're you're moving tiny things around on the screen and it's not it doesn't feel very magical (laughs) at all times um but that's my relationship with that kind of drum programming it's, it's complicated but um there's some very quiet moments on the album as well and so it's i like the idea of just almost taking those rhythmic structures like a as, as a sort of a framework of as a canvas almost and then you can you can paint what you like on that you can you can be um transmitting the same stuff you know using that as a framework but um yeah, it was a very long and difficult one to make, but yeah, it, like you say, it did uh, it did open a lot of stuff up for me. Yeah, and gave seminal. Me some freedom. Yes, very much a seminal record. Could I interject something there, John? Because yeah. I, mm. I think the track um, "Sit Around the Fire" single um, probably wouldn't have come about if it wasn't for COVID and like you essentially being home and having mm. time. And on top of that, I remember at the time you saying like you were. When we first, I hope this isn't too personal, but you were just having trouble like sleeping and you're just trying to get your, get your center again mm-hmm. after all the stuff you've been doing and, yeah. and the sort of more beat driven music. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was the perfect timing and alignment of where you were at in your life that led to like wanting to make and making a very spacious track like that. Yeah. And that was somewhat an alignment of what was happening is like one of the gifts of COVID, uh, of having that spaciousness and that time and a, and a desire to create the feeling that came out of it. Yeah, that's completely the case. And in fact, that applies ultimately to the entire album. Um, none of it would, none of it would be here. We, we wouldn't be talking had none, yeah. none of this, you know, happened. Um, but that was, there was, uh, you know, the, there's a whole section of the album, a 20 minute section based around the uh, inexperience in Ecuador of living in caves, which is a whole other story. That one already existed. And then um, Sit Around the Fire appears October, November. Um, and that was the point where I realized I might be writing an album. I wasn't really aware that I was writing an album at this point. And um, I was, 
yeah, kind of kind of a magical thing when you realize you're you're quite a way into something. Yeah, <laughs> it could, be, it could be really important to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, you just ran over something like a throwaway, but I caught it. Okay, <laughs> the caves in Ecuador. I ain't got to hear about the caves in Ecuador. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I, I yeah, I I think um, so. Really, the the genesis of this album is that trip I went on in 2018 so it was the year the singularity came out and um, I was invited by my friend Eileen Hall who did the beautiful um, artwork for the album Um, uh, her father Stan Hall had made his living um, as an explorer like genuinely just exploring looking for looking for ancient treasures and mapping places and he was obsessed with these caves called the Taos Caves um, in the high altitude parts of uh, Amazon in Ecuador, and um, Eileen was, is very keen to carry on his legacy and um, keep. I think that the idea behind this expedition, which involved me and a neuroscientist called Mendel Kalin, and um, photographers and artists and guides and tribes people, and it was you know incredible. Um, to, to meet people from the Shua tribe who live in that area and have been. Um, I believe having ayahuasca ceremonies in these caves for for many years, um, they were our guides. And the idea was that we would go and live in these caves, which is a sixty meter drop down. Um, you know, that's the most terrifying thing I ever did. I didn't think about that bit in advance. Just like, okay, this is this is what's happening. Um, and um, the idea is that we would generate art and music and, and science really as well, neuroscience about the effects of living in a, uh, in a cave on the brain and on consciousness and on meditation um, and, and try and shine a little light on this place in our, in our own small way with the hope of protecting it from, you know, the usual kind of threats that these places are under, these sacred places, you know, uh, mining and so forth. So um, I went down there and uh, my Mendel, who I mentioned, was did a lot of field recordings um, and so um, my job was to be down there in order to, not, not to write anything down there, but just to absorb the atmosphere and to, to meditate on it and to, to return um, and make a piece of music. And uh, because of the, all the aforementioned touring and, and stuff that came with Singularity, I didn't get the time to really sit with those recordings and, and devote myself to this, this project until 2020 as well. So... You know, I think it was June, and I had I hadn't written anything. I was totally burnt out, and obviously, like like everyone was was having a very anxious time. And um, this, I was just like, I had this brainwave one morning. It's like I think I'm ready to write that Ecuador piece. And then, in a much in much the same way as the rest of the album, and also very much the same as Sit Around the Fire, this this thing, I just put these these field recordings into Ableton, my production software, and. Um, started improvising over them and once again it all just came you know in a an absolute flood and uh within two weeks that whole thing was done that's 20 minutes of music and it's not it's a it's not a simple piece but it it was writing itself and it was like and never have i felt so much just like a vessel you know this place was pouring its wisdom into the sound and uh this is you know this makes up most of the first half of the album and um yeah it's it it's it's incredible hearing it back because i don't really remember any of the techniques involved in writing it was like oh yeah that's what it felt like to be there <laughs> that's all i can say oh, yeah. that's that's the spirit of that place mm. so um yeah, yeah that was really that. The, the, we yeah. you haven't shared that with a uh, baby you did with with uh, krishna but. i i mean i heard it in an early form back when we were recording i think and it was actually an interesting influence because look, i'm quite partial to field recordings and how they they capture a sense of space and so the fact that it was a, the central element was this extremely space specific recording uh was was amazing to me and uh i yeah i dove in deep on that one a few times i still have i, I love the feeling it has it has a really beautiful feeling it's a sort of this ethereal expansiveness yeah mm. yeah i mean so this piece you can hear um like it will be released um, with the album in November, but there, it, it is available on a, a sort of, um, I don't know how to describe really, a kind of uh, 
a website that's about these caves um, called, if you look up the, the liminal compass, um, you can actually go in and um, I, there's, there's all this stuff you can read, incredible images, and you can hear that piece in there. And um, so this, this kind of emerged before anything else was um, available to anyone. Oh, this, so say it again, liminal? Yeah, the, the liminal compass. And I think the website is tyos.org, which is T-A-Y-O-S dot O-R-G. Um, okay, great. So yeah. that's on there. I want to I go there. I want to go there now. <laughs> uh, so uh, I want to play another track before uh, we, uh, we have to go. And uh, I'll just say that uh, I listened to this track. It's uh, called uh, Wintergreen from, uh, I think, the, it's a, an EP or something, Piano Visions? Yeah, it's piano, it's piano Versions, and it's actually a cover of a, a Brian Eno and Roger Eno collaboration. Uh -huh. right. um, it's a beautiful story. They, Roger uh, is a, it's a great pianist, and he was playing these... Um, Playing these melodies on on just just straight to MIDI, which is you know uh, which Brian would then take and then do the sounds for. So it's a beautiful, simple, but very evocative record. And I I just wanted to do a, a piano version of that. Okay, well here's what happened to me because I put it on this morning, and you know I was doing stuff, getting ready, know a little bit more about you for the podcast and everything else I'm doing in terms of all my work, and you know shall we say, a little bit of spinning was going on. And not, no matter that I did my practice and I'm like, wait a minute, what, what the hell? And I was still unsettled. Let's put it that way. And I put the track on. And uh, it did the job, John. That's all I got to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I have it, it on vinyl. It's a good you one. You do? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was my. given to me as a gift recently by Rada. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, oh, nice. amazing! <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, this. I mean, in all of the work that I've been doing, you know, since I first went to India all those years ago with Ramdas and all that, and met Neem Karoli Baba, uh, you know, the development of a spacious quality through meditative practice, through mindfulness, through whatever you do, mantra, whatever you do, kirtan. You know, reading a book, listen, it doesn't matter. The development to me, of, uh, for me, of spaciousness within uh, the presence of moment, within be here now, is the easiest way to put it, uh, is um, extraordinarily important to be able to navigate the day-to-day -day stuff. And, you know, we are getting thrown some, you know, really difficult stuff since COVID, since racial injustice, polarization in this country is, is enormous. And uh, that is so evident in this track, that spaciousness with your piano playing, and I mean, and the composition itself. Uh, I, 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 it's a, it'll be a go-to thing for me now, so I thank you for it, John. Thank it's, you, it's and thank you for saying that. And I think, um, you know, these pieces that I'm doing, particularly that piano version of ZP and the, and the new album, are getting more and more spacious as things around us get less spacious, you know, direct reaction. And mm, this is how yeah. I cope with things. Yeah. And I think that to hear that anyone is, is also feeling some of that space through it is, is literally the point of it for me. So thank you. And here we go. Let's, uh, you know, uh, everybody take a listen. This is Wintergreen from Piano Versions. Well, I think you all 
everybody listening and or watching out there, I think you get what it is that uh, I meant when I put this on this morning and it just turned around my moment. And uh, yeah, uh, just delighted to have you here and, and, and uh, Krishna as well. Just before we go though, um, so the album is called Music for Psychedelic Therapy, am I correct? That is correct, yeah. And that's Sit by the Fire that we played earlier <laughs> in the podcast. And that's, uh, I mean, with everything that's going on, I want both your reflections here. Everything that's going on with, uh, and the wonderful work that Rick Doblin's doing through MAPS to help create an atmosphere where this is going to get government approved, people will be able to carry on therapy without hiding in back rooms, doing stuff with people and all of that, which is extraordinarily important. And um, so that you are providing that in it's, a, it's, it's just a poignant moment because so much of that kind of work is going on. And to have, uh, for me, music is a guide post and, and to have that fit into uh, the kind of work that many people are doing, uh, I think is a, a tremendous accomplishment, John. Now, I haven't heard the rest of the album and I'll probably be bugging you to get me in advance or something. Because, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Send it but, to you. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just talk a little bit about how this came about and what your, your own personal involvement with the title of this uh, album. Yeah, I mean... Um, I think the like uh, all of this comes from subconscious things. So I, it's almost like I'm the last to know what's actually going on, you know, conscious me, um, the ego bit of me or whatever is like, oh, this is what we're doing, is it? But for a while, it seems that a part of my brain has been thinking about this concept. And um, I have some friends who I met through the, the psychedelic world over here in, in London who had... Um, had run the you know our our, um, our psilocybin for depression trials, which of course you have over there at Johns Hopkins University, I believe. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and um, I'd just been talking with my friend who was running that trial about uh, the playlist and what what people were listening to, and we were you know we were sharing tracks and ideas. And I was just like, I think a part of my brain was like, well, you know, your your experience psilocybin, for example, is not is not made up of lots of different five minute sections which come from different people. Um, I feel like there's a genre here. There's a new, I don't want to call it anything a new genre anymore, but you know what I mean? It's like, there's a, a different kind of framework possibly mm. um, that we can write in, which is longer form, you know, like uh, I can't write six hours of this stuff yet, but the, the, the um, to sort of jump forward to when I was writing this record, um, it was ketamine that I was finding to be particularly powerful. And, um, and the length of time that that experience takes uh, is roughly um, the same as the length of the album. And um, the title appeared to me after a ketamine journey in which I was testing out some early versions of this track. It's like, oh, this is what I'm making. This is the name of the album. And it was like the most clear thing I've ever, you know, it's like, there's no question, you know, and if anyone has problems with it I, I can't help I'm afraid because this is what it is and then it, it all started to come together very quickly you know I've never this whole thing was written really in about maybe the bulk of it about six months which for me is short um, but the ideas go back throughout my life um, but I just think that you know there's a lot of conversation about the legalization and it's, it's all wonderful but in, maybe I'm biased because I'm a musician and also I'm in this area, but to me it seems like we should be talking about the music with almost equal importance because you can't separate the two experiences. If you, I don't know if either of you have read the Michael Pollan book, How to Change mm. Your Mind, but he brilliantly details how he has a, I don't remember what medicine is, I think it's psilocybin, but he has an experience that is quite claustrophobic and unpleasant and it's because the music that's playing is is you know, a little dodgy. And uh, and then they change it to a beautiful Brahms quartet or something and suddenly everything opens up. Mm. You know, and that's, it's, so it's the Good difference example. between, yeah, and he writes it beautifully and it's the difference between the one and the other, you know. You've got to be hearing the right thing and obviously I'm not saying it's going to be right for everyone but I've written what works 
for me. Um, that's all I can do or what, or what comes through me, maybe, um, with the hope that it will do the same thing for others. And I, it's an unusual thing to say about your own music, but I had, when I was testing it out towards finishing it off, I was just like, I don't know where this came from, but this is the, deep, the deepest thing. It's the deepest thing I've done and I don't know how I did it. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> Uh, that's so great, John. Really great. And uh, of course, Krishna, I know you've been working in this area uh, a lot. You well, took the words out of my mouth. I mean, that's my experience as well. And I just wanted, I want to highlight that what you said about, at least in the psychedelic music space and therapy and this whole thing that's emerging, uh, music is most definitely a bit of an afterthought. And it's a mistake because not only traditionally, and we see this across the ages of indigenous ceremony, but the music really becomes the ceremony. It's the central guide and it is not an afterthought. It's incredibly important. And so I really honor that you put something out there that can be used as a tool this way. And I agree too that right now the playlists that are out there for it if you think about it, like all the songs on them, they're like, this is off-label use in a sense. Like none of them were designed with the intention. They might they might work just fine in different ways, but they're probably shorter. And more importantly, this hit me once on a journey. I was listening to a playlist someone made and going, I was ketamine journey uh, at my partner's therapy clinic. And it was like every time a new song came on, it was like a different soul entered the space. It was like a whole new language. Okay. And I was like, all right, I had to reorient. Okay, where are we? Who is this? What kind of vibe? And then it would be over. And then there was another one. And I was like, oh, there's a real value to a single artistic voice carrying you from beginning to end. And it's almost mm. this like modern hybrid of what the, the, the shaman or facilitator was. There's one person singing the Akaros or singing the Lakota Sweat Lodge songs. They may be different songs, but there's one voice. And that's something that had been missing largely in in these modern offerings, which there are very few. So you're putting yourself out there in a way that's very needed. And um, I think there's value to that that is yet to be recognized. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's almost as if with a playlist thing, you've got like a revolving door and you've got all these people totally. with their, their histories, their personalities, like, their lives. karma. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I always, I don't know about you, but if I'm deep in an experience, I start thinking, who's this musician? I want to know yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it. You know, sometimes huh. I'd be like, I don't know, something's off about this. I don't know what's going on with this. I mean, the yeah. music's okay, but something, something's off. I feel a little off. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Mm. Um, but it was crazy in, in, the, in some of the formative stages of writing these tracks, I would feel, um, you know, I would, I would test out on ketamine to test out the where the tracks had got to and if they were wrong and i hadn't noticed in my waking consciousness i would notice in the ketamine space and it would be so extreme how wrong they sounded and i realized i was it was like wading through sludge it's just like this awful yeah. so something's just a bit you know and i had i come back with these realizations like return from the ether with these crazy detailed notes about what's wrong and then rebuild it and um yeah it's, mm. it's pretty cool. Yeah, I know that feeling that you're talking about when you test it out and mm. you're hearing something and the medicine allows you to separate where you're not sure how things were made anymore. And then it's almost like this, this bizarre experience of like yourself speaking to yourself, but in a way that feels, it's the parts of you that are all of us, like the larger parts of us. And it's like much bigger than the self, the smaller identity. And you're just like, mm. what is this wisdom that comes through yeah. that I don't even know how this happened? Yeah, and why can't it be there all the time? Yeah, <laughs> That's the exactly. other thing. Why isn't my waking <laughs> life a bit more wise? <laughs> Which uh, leads me to remind everybody uh, about why did Ramdas go to India? Because he kept coming down. I mean, he even went, we, I was just talking to my friend, uh, Ramesh Radas, who co-wrote the, uh, uh, the memoir that we just put out of Ramdas earlier this, this year, being Ramdas. And there was one stage at which they were in Millbrook and they all, they, it, actually Leary wasn't there, but a bunch of them that were living in Mill, Millbrook went into a room with a pile of of psychedelics of all from STP to DMT that you know, acid all of it and just kept seeing what's going to happen we could break through so that you wouldn't come down 
Well, they ended up actually mostly uh, after a while, it, no effect. <laughs> you you do it, it just zero, and uh, they ended up like in a bickering war between them. <laughs> Some bullshit. It was like absolute, and that led Ramdas. That was part of what led him to go to India, looking for a map of consciousness because he could not believe that, or he, he couldn't believe it. He just kept coming down. And he didn't want to come down anymore. And so he got there, and there's, of course, the whole story of giving that uh, uh, acid to Neem Karoli Baba, who eventually said, this is good for beginners. It gets you, uh, he said, it gets you into the room with Christ for a couple of hours, but then you got to leave. So eventually best to love everyone and serve everyone is what he said. Uh, but I, I would say, and we're talking, you know, all of the uh, conversation that we've had here, and I don't want to... I don't want to act like the school uh, monitor here, but at the same time, Ramdas in particular and Leary's thing about set and setting for any of these experimentations that any of us do, and particularly if you're just coming into it. And as John said earlier, he he found a foundation that he was comfortable with inside himself before he started experimenting, that's extremely, extremely important. And so is if you're just moving towards this kind of experimentation, being with someone who's had some experience and a loving, uh, an unconditionally loving being that can be your foundation and help uh, pick the right music even. And that's, you know, setting. And so this is just... Uh, uh, I would be at fault, I would say, for uh, if I didn't mention that this kind of care needs to be taken with these uh, ethnogens. I won't say any more. And, and that to be said, you know, Music for Psychedelic Therapy, your album, there's nothing to say that can't be used off-label in itself. You know, you don't need to be on psychedelics to uh, journey right. with it. Yeah. It could be just listening to it and breathing mm. alone is quite mm. powerful, let alone whatever else use. And I, I think that's wonderful to remember that it's, it's, it's music. It's a, it's beautiful music yeah. that's thoughtfully composed like any other. And some people like put things in a category as if it, that now makes it just for that. And I, mm. I disagree with that entirely. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And for me, it's like the going, broadening the meaning back to what psychedelic means, you know, mind exploring therapy. And for me that you could, just be lying there, you know. It Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I hope that it will be um, taken in that way. Well, this song "Wintergreen" that we talked about a little earlier and played did that for me in the moment. Okay. Absolutely. And uh, whereas uh, whatever meditation I was doing a little earlier than that did not do that <laughs> for me. It couldn't let go. Music is such a beautiful way to let go. I mean. Let go, let God, the bumper sticker says, right? <laughs> hey, thank you so much for being here, both of you, John and Krishna, East Forest, and uh, everybody. Of course, we have a multi we'll have a bunch of links to put in, in there, and the guys who put the show notes together will we'll do that. And, of course, uh, uh, we haven't mentioned, we should, uh, maybe we, we sideways mentioned the video, which... Uh, was done by a group called uh, Yes Please, arranged by uh, John's label, and uh, expertly done. I mean, we work with them a little bit and gave them material, but basically, it's it's uh, this uh, beautiful animation of of the uh, Be Here Now brown pages, and this is going to be a central part of our 50th, celebra 50th anniversary of Be Here Now and the celebration that we're going to do in Los Angeles in October that Krishna is going to be part of. Uh, John, we don't know if you'll we're, make we're it here. We're sending the jet for you, buddy. But, yeah, don't well, worry we'll about see. it. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, you'll have this all accessible and uh, enjoy, enjoy. And, again, you guys, thank you. And this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and take advantage of all the glorious podcasts, including our new Alan Watts podcast, which is, uh, of course, Alan is spectacular, was close to Ram Dass, and it's kind of a thrill for us to have him along. 
with the ride. And uh, we'll see you next week. Namaste. Namaste.